John the Baptist can be scary. His wild appearance mixed with his rhetoric um, intimidates us and threatens us. Nobody likes to be called a brood of vipers. And that image of the axe about to chop down the tree that doesn't bear fruit to throw it into the fire, that is terrifying. I don't want to be that tree. John gets us on the edge of our seats. We are alert, awake. We are paying attention, even if his fear-creating tactics may not be our favorite way for one to do such a thing. And I think we get so hung up on John's tone of voice and his rhetoric that it becomes hard to listen to what he actually says. The way John speaks, he sounds like somebody who is preparing us for the Iron Man of Righteousness. We need to sell all of our possessions and live in poverty. We need to keep a regimented prayer schedule. We need to confront every social ill and expose every injustice, even if it costs us all of our friends and all of our family relationships. John is looking for the Navy SEALs of faith. That's what we hear in his tone, in the way he speaks. But I want you to take a deep breath this morning. Don't be intimidated by the wild hair and the beard and the loud voice at the riverbank. Pay attention instead to the instructions John gives. You'll find there a mixture of apocalyptic imagery and practical action. The first thing he does is he condemns anybody who's using their ethnic background as a way of elevating themselves above anybody else. Bloodline, lineage, heritage, do not create a hierarchy of worth or value. So the lineage, the bloodline, they're they're unimportant in the kingdom of God. Having your kid baptized because your grandparents were active in that church or doing what you got to do to just stay a a member in good standing on the roster, those are lifting up heritage and lineage. Those are not acts that save. So the question then comes, well, what does save? And three times, John is asked by different groups in our passage today, what then should we do? To the first group, he says, anyone who has two coats... Give one away to somebody who doesn't have one. And if you have extra food, give that away too. So, John, you're not saying that we need to adopt the ascetic lifestyle of the prophet. We, we don't need to sell all we have and give it to those with less or, or open our home to house all of those who have no homes. Just give away a coat, share some extra food. That doesn't sound apocalyptic sounds doable. The next group that comes to John are the tax collectors. Tax collectors are the worst. These Jewish men are sellouts to the Roman Empire. They're in cahoots with them. They are uh, practicing heresy to their faith and treason to their political identity because their willingness to collect taxes for the empire is preventing Israel from having its own sovereign nation with a descendant of David sitting on the throne in Jerusalem. So they're betraying their faith and their nation. 
Add to that that Rome turned a blind eye to any tax collector who chose to collect more than what Rome demanded, send off what was needed, and then pocket the rest. So not only are these tax collectors Jewish men in cahoots with the oppressive empire, they're using their role to fleece their own people. They're the worst. And they come to John at the riverbank, and they ask, what then should we do? And we'd expect John to say, stop being a tax collector. Give all the money back to the people that you took from them. But that's not what he says. Instead, he responds, collect no more than the amount prescribed for you. Similarly, Roman soldiers come to the riverbank. These are not Jewish people, but they're curious Gentiles. These are the ones who are responsible for keeping order and implementing the edicts of Caesar in the community. They are the enemy. They've sworn to protect the empire at all costs. They ask, what should we do? You would think, John would say, stop being a Roman soldier. Turn against the empire. Resist Rome. But instead, he says, Do not extort money by threats or false accusations and be satisfied with your wages. So it would be easy to take John's instructions, this practical application of apocalyptic energy, and, and make it a checklist that we could follow so that we're not chopped down on the last day and thrown into the fire. So the first would be we're not going to use our background, our ethnicity, to promote ourselves over anybody else to create a hierarchy. There's one. Uh, Number two, Um, we're going to give away any extra coats or food that we have to others. Three, we're going to practice integrity in our business practice. Um, Four, we're not going to threaten or abuse people. And five, we're going to be content with our salary. But this isn't actually a list. Uh, Fred Craddock, in his Commentary on this passage expands our imagination about what it is saying when he writes, John shapes an answer appropriate to the special temptations to each questioner. So we have to think more broadly than the legalistic list. And so what you see here from John is a a call to humility, not lifting up your status or standing or bloodline above another. He's, he's calling for generosity, giving up your coat, giving up food. He's asking them to practice integrity, only collecting what you need in your tax collection business, not extorting through threats money from others because you're a Roman soldier. And he's teaching contentment. Be satisfied with your wages. Don't always be looking for a way to attain more. Humility, generosity, integrity, contentment. I don't know. Those don't seem all that hard. Isn't that just what you'd kind of expect from just common decency? So this is how we prepare the way of the Lord. This is how the kingdom of God comes to the earth. And how are these values somehow tied to repentance, fruit worthy of repentance? Well, maybe 
all of this instruction is more difficult than it sounds. When we actually try to live this way, it becomes more complicated, more complex. It was exactly 10 years ago this week. I was sitting in my office at the church early in the morning in eastern Tennessee. It was a cold day. It was spitting snow outside. It was Wednesday. It was about 8.15. I was sitting at my desk um, before anybody else had arrived. And my office was on one side of the building. So I had a private entrance that went just directly from the outside into the pastor's study. I was sitting at my desk. I had my Bible open. I was preparing the sermon for Sunday. Now, I need to tell you at this point, this story I'm about to tell you is absolutely true. This is exactly how it happened. It will become clear in a minute why I need to give that disclaimer because you'll think I made it up, but I didn't. So at 8.15, I'm working on my sermon. The Bible's open, and there's a knock on that door to the pastor's study. People don't usually come to that door. I look up, and I look through the window, and I see the face of a young woman, a young man, and an older man standing behind them. When I open the door, it is obvious that the woman is very pregnant. She cannot button her coat. Hi, she says. My name is Amanda, and this is my fiancé, Tim. We just got into town. We are not from here. We just arrived here, um, and we don't have anywhere to stay, and we don't have any money. But um, Raymond here, and Raymond behind him waved, ha- has offered us uh, an extra room in his apartment until we can find a place to live and money to get started. Y'all, it was December 8th. It was spitting snow outside. I was sitting at my desk writing the sermon for the second Sunday of Advent. And here comes a woman, uh, nine months pregnant, to the door with a man she's not married to who claims she's traveled a long way from out of town and they have no place to stay. So there was obviously no choice, if the gospel is true at all, but to act. So I made some phone calls. Members of the church began to collect money. Somebody found a a low-rent house for about $500 a month that was available. We paid the first and last month's rent, and we got the utilities turned on for them. A couple of weeks after they had moved their things in, um, Amanda gave birth. It was not December 24th. It was a little girl. They named her Serenity. I went to see them at the Morristown Hamlin Hospital. I held the baby. I prayed with them. They were part of our church community now. When they got back home a few days later, the Presbyterian women organized the baby shower. They provided them with a crib, bottles, bibs, clothes, toys, diapers, a diaper genie. They even stocked the kitchen with plates, silverware, a crock pot, a coffee maker, a can opener, and all the rest. Ted came up in his pickup truck with a washer and dryer so that Amanda and Tim wouldn't have to go to the laundromat and use their money to to clean clothes. Uh, Larry, who knew most of the contractors in the area, he helped Tim get a job with a local roofer doing basic carpentry. I swear, I, I did not make this up. So 
So a couple of weeks after getting settled with Serenity in their home, they came to worship. It was January now. They sat among this church who had become their church family. And on Monday, our administrator came into my office with an offering envelope. And in the envelope was a $5 bill with their names on the front. Their first contribution to this church that had cared for them, an act of reciprocity for the kindness and love that had been shown. Now, I would love to leave us right there, misty-eyed with the possibility of the gospel and the beauty of grace and the living power of the word among us, and the Grinch would carve the roast beast, and Ebenezer Scrooge would give away his money, and Harry Bailey would get back from war to hug his big brother George and tell him that he truly does have a wonderful life. But that's not how this story actually ends. It wasn't long after they'd been to worship that I got word that there had been a domestic event at Amanda and Tim's home. The neighbors had heard them yelling at each other so loud that it was disturbing them, so they called the police. The police showed up at the house, and when they checked the two people's names, they found that they had um, arrest warrants out for petty crimes in Tennessee and in Florida, then learned that Amanda had had one or two other children who now were were being taken care of by the state. She wasn't able to keep them. They had both a long history of drug addiction and arrests. Amanda started trying to call us obsessively once she was in jail. Church members whose cell phone numbers they'd given her, the church office, my phone, trying to get money to get bail, such as that. I wrote her a letter eventually, explaining that we weren't going to do that, but we wanted to stay connected. We wanted to see them through this. We believed there was a better future. Um, But I never heard back, and they kind of just faded away. Humility, generosity, integrity, contentment. These are actually more difficult when we try to live them because sometimes, maybe most of the time, we end up disappointed, cynical, angry, and bitter. Begin to think, well, you know what? I'm glad I'm not that way because I came from a good family where my parents were able to teach me right from wrong. My family was better than that family. We create a hierarchy based on background. I don't want to give my coat to somebody else. Who knows what they're going to do once they get it? And you know, with all the scoundrels and the crooks and the liars and the cheats out there, the few corners that I'm cutting in the workplace, they don't really matter. Stories like Amanda and Tim's leave you disenchanted, wondering if The gospel story itself is just a fairy tale we ought to give up on. Yeah, that's why these actions are fruits worthy of repentance. Because when that cynicism, that disappointment, that bitterness creeps in, we have to confess that we've made all of these actions of kindness and mercy and love about us about how it makes us feel, 
how there was an expectation that this achieved success by our standards, that we could say later that this was worth it, that it made a difference, instead of simply doing it out of obedience to God and out of faith in God's possibility. So we repent and we return to humility, generosity, integrity, contentment. These actions do not bring the kingdom of God. They simply point to the one who does. They are a witness, as John the Baptist was, an action to point to the one who comes with Holy Spirit fire, who will ultimately reign all in all. So we keep pointing, repenting and serving until the time arrives, leaving the ultimate and final outcome, not to our standards, but to God, the one who is all in all. Amen.